Welcome to Brook USA on the Road. Our mission at Brook USA is to significantly improve the welfare of working horses, donkeys, and mules, and the people they serve throughout Asia, Africa, the Middle East, the Americas, and the Caribbean by raising funds and responsibly directing them to the areas of greatest need. Brook USA connects private philanthropists with their passion for helping relieve the suffering of working equines and their owners. In each podcast episode, you'll hear a report from one of our board members on the current initiatives for our organization. You'll also enjoy updates from our Brook USA ambassadors, who range from top-level international writers to best-selling authors. I'm your host, Julianne Neal. In this episode, you'll have the opportunity to learn more about Brook USA, a nonprofit, board led organization dedicated to alleviating the suffering of working equines and the people they serve in the developing world. In this episode of Brook USA on the Road, you'll have a chance to hear about our latest initiative, The Power of One. You'll also hear from board member Laura Rombauer and her daughter Ransom. Laura is the owner of California-based Napa Valley Vintage Home. You'll also hear from celebrity ambassador Ingrid Hoffman. Ingrid is the host of Simply Delicioso on the Cooking Channel and a frequent guest of shows like Martha Stewart, Oprah, and The View. She recently partnered with the American Diabetes Association to write a new cookbook, Latin Comfort Foods Made Healthy, more than 100 diabetes-friendly Latin favorites. Ransom, thank you for being with us today to speak a little bit about Brook USA and how you all got involved in the organization. And um, I hear, Ransom, that you were the one that initiated this relationship between Brook USA and the whole Roundbauer family. How did you hear about Brook USA and what led you to get involved in the first place, Ransom? Well, it was actually kind of interesting. Um, I was at McClay Finals with my mother and we, I think we're just watching warm up rounds or something and sitting at a table and we saw the Brook USA brochure and, um, it was just kind of yeah. sitting on the table. It's just sitting there and my mom and I are both involved and interested in animal welfare, specifically equine welfare. And, um, it was just something a little bit different and I'm pretty sure it sat on your desk for like a year. Right, mom? Yeah. I think this yeah. was actually in 2015 we were at mcclay finals and sitting there at a table killing time and on all these tables where the the brochures were were laid out and we're sitting there eating and and we're like you know looking at the brochure and i'm like wow this sounds really this seems really interesting and um and i you know put it in our bag and i hung on to it and i hung on to it for a good while um and it actually made it out of the bag, made it home from Kentucky all the way back to California and sat on my desk for almost a year, to be quite honest. And we started, you know, looking into it online and um, we thought, wouldn't it be cool to start, you know, donating? So, you know, a year goes by and then 2016, um, Ransom thought, okay, why don't I start donating some of my prize money that she would get in the, um, like hundred or, you know, yeah. hundred plastics. I was 
did, you know, mostly equitation, but, um, I did some hunters and jumpers here and there. So any prize money, that was one, it wasn't a lot, but it was, you know, enough to make a bit of a difference. <laughs> well, it's funny. I I'm in dressage and we don't win anything. I mean, there is no prize money <laughs> when I do. So first of all, the fact that you were a teenager and donating your, your winnings, I think is pretty impressive. So mom, I think that speaks a little bit to you and how you, how you raised your daughter. I think that's a wonderful thing. So congratulations, first of all, on that. And then, Laura, your commitment to animal welfare, the well-being of animals in a global sense is really evident through your support of Brook USA. You're actually now a member of the board of directors. And so can you tell me how this came about? How did that start? Well, our family, we've always been very, we're an animal family, I would say. We, you know, we've had chickens. We've always had dogs, lots of dogs you know, with the horses, we seem to accumulate a lot of animals and um, animal welfare has just always been like a part of our life. It's just kind of who we are. And, you know, as a ransom, I was kind of the primary person that would travel with her when she'd go to competitions. And, you know, we just became more and more aware of what was happening in the equine world. Um, you know, Pre-Brook, it was primarily more domestic issues with um, kill pens and slaughter and just, you know, general equine welfare issues. And um, as we kind of educated ourselves initially with Brook USA, you know, became more aware of this global issue. And it just seemed really interesting. And um uh, and as I got to know the organization better, and um, I ended up meeting Emily Doolin and Kendall, um, they came out to the West Coast uh, to visit a couple of their um, West Coast donors. And um, we met in person, and we kind of connected, and it just seemed like a really interesting thing, and it really caught my attention. And um kind of the rest is history, actually. You know, it was really, um, you know, a, a great organization and I really wanted to get involved. Well, I mean, the board of directors, I've, I've learned a little bit about several different people who are on the board. And I mean, there's a wide representation of the different disciplines and different, you know, careers in the equestrian world or whatever. So that's a wonderful, that's a, that's a phenomenal thing to be a part of the board. Is there anything in particular that you're really proud of that, that you've been able to accomplish while you've been part of the, the board and the organization? Well, we've had an, an annual fundraising event for, oh my gosh, I'm not sure how many years it's been, at least four years, I believe, that's based at the Wellington, um, um, at WEF, you know, every, for that winter circuit, that 12-week circuit. And that's been our primary fundraiser. And what we've been able to achieve as far as raising monies in a relatively short period of time has been pretty amazing. Um uh, so I'm very, you know, I've always been very excited about that and the potential um, to continue to grow that and actually take that format of a fundraising event and do something similar on the West Coast is super exciting. Um, and, you know, that involves, um, you know, it's a, it's a social event. There's, um, we uh, generate income from ticket sales as well as, live and silent auction items, things of that nature. 
Um, but it's a great event. It's very well attended in, in Wellington. And um, we hope to have similar success on the West Coast. But of course, like for everybody and all nonprofits or everybody, this pandemic has really thrown a wrench into everything. But, you know, we will get through this. Um, we have yeah. to be more innovative, like online auctions, um, doing a lot of meetings virtually. And I think everyone has adjusted pretty well. And um, so it, it is challenging, but, um, you know, I'm confident that um, we'll, we'll get back to where we want to be, you know, in the near future and people feel more comfortable traveling and um, hopefully we will have a some normalcy. It might be a new normal, but I feel optimistic um, for the for our organization and um, our ability to raise these important funds. Well, I think it's so impressive to me that the staff, Emily and Kendall, you mentioned, and also Amanda, um, they're pretty innovative when it comes to how they're raising money and how they're getting the word out there. There was just a film event that was online and just the power of one campaign, different things that they have going. So I think you're absolutely right. Until we do have a way of getting back to our new normal, I guess it will be. Right. Um, online, the virtual thing is pretty impressive. And so even today we're Zooming. So you're in California and Ransom, you're in Texas, and here I am in South Carolina, and right. I, I feel like we're sitting down with each other. So that's I know. Cool. Yeah, thank thank you for for Zoom. But you know, oh. these like this, you know, virtual um, outreach and through social media, you know, I think um, you know once we do get to our new normal, I don't think these different platforms. I mean, it's it, it they're here to stay, and it's yeah. been very effective. And so I think um, this will be very much a part of our organization in addition to our in-person opportunities. So I hope so. It's pretty, yeah. it's pretty interesting, actually. <laughs> I think so, too. I'm yeah. on the Echo Film Festival team, and our whole thing for this year has gone to virtual. And so we're, yeah. we're all adjusting. Yeah. Well, so even yeah. before we got to the virtual part of it, Ransom, your, your background, you're at school now. You were equestrian from, I guess, a, a very young age. What was your background in the equestrian world and how in the world are you balancing all that with school and everything else? Um, yeah, so I'm here at SMU in Dallas, Texas, and I'm actually finishing up my senior year here. So home stretch, almost done. Um, it's definitely been difficult, especially during COVID, um, balancing college and competitions I didn't really compete that much this past summer because of the pandemic. Um, but yeah, I started riding. I don't know. I think I went to horse camp when I was around seven years old and I just fell in love with the animals and um, it slowly escalated from there. And I didn't, I was kind of late to the party um, in the sense that I didn't start competing on the A circuit until I was about 12 years old. Um, and I was mainly just competing in NorCal and then, you know, it kind of escalated and I branched out to Southern California. Um, and then, so I was just competing on the West coast and I mainly did equitation and I catch rode some hunters and did some jumpers here and there. Um, and then I started looking at colleges and I met, um, a good friend of mine and, <laughs> so random and like spontaneous, but she worked with Ashland Farms and she, you know, thought it would be a good connection to make. And 
I went to Wellington, met with the Smiths, and that, that was my senior year of high school. And then ever since then, I've just been with them. And uh, yeah. I'll have to um, interject a little bit here. Yes, so yes, Ransom, it was a leap of faith on on my part, or I should say my husband's mm-hmm. on my part. And, um, and actually pretty brave on Ransom's part. Um, we ended up choosing to, well, Ransom, our family decided to have Ransom finish her senior year in high school um, online. And we ended up renting uh, an apartment in Wellington for her last semester of high school so that she could compete in Wellington basically, you know, full time for the full circuit. And so there I was, I had a lot of confidence in you sending my high school senior to live, live by herself in an apartment. We got her a golf cart for the whole circuit and she would, I might say illegally was driving back and forth from the, yeah, illegally back and forth from the horse show grounds to her little apartment and um, and that's where she really got to know the Smith family and ended up working pretty closely with their son, Spencer Smith. And um, and I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing because she's very hooked right now. And, you know, three jumpers later, <laughs> you know, wow. we drink Kool-Aid. <laughs> yes, it but, sounds um, like it. Yeah, we drink the Kool-Aid. And um, so since then, she's had a, a very strong relationship with the Smith family and training with them um, through the course of the year and commuting back and forth from school. And, you know, they've been very flexible and accommodating and understanding that, you know, we got to get this girl to graduate. That's first and foremost. And then, um, you know, we'll figure out what's going to happen once that's done. But, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that took a lot of guts, both on on Ransom's part and yours, Laura. I mean, to let her to let her go and let her fly like that. That's that's pretty special. So I think that was a pretty major milestone in your life, Ransom. I think that you grew up a lot. I really it definitely prepared me for college. Like I felt like it was a good stepping stone. And uh yeah, it was wow. it was amazing. I can imagine. Well, speaking of courage and bravery, Laura, you've also, not only are you supporting the cause here in the States, you had the courage to go to India on a Brook USA trip, I understand, and visit the kilns, the brick kilns. I'm, I'm just learning about that. And um, it's there is some powerful work going on there. Can you tell me a little bit about that trip and, and how it came about? Sure. Um, well, I would consider myself fair, you know, fairly well-traveled, definitely lots of travel domestically. And we've definitely as a family and professionally have traveled to Europe numerous times. And I consider, I'm consider myself, I'm a pretty good traveler. And this opportunity came up to, um, was presented to me to go see Brooke USA's work in India. And um, I've never been to India before. Um, didn't know a whole lot about India, um, you know, was familiar with some of the, the, the projects and work that we were doing there through Brook USA. And I just was kind of nervous about it. You know, I'm a middle-aged woman, you know, I'm 
going there on my own, of course, with Brooke colleagues, Brooke USA mm-hmm. colleagues. But, you know, it was kind of a, a little bit out of my comfort zone. But I thought, you know, what the heck, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it. And um, so we did it. And uh, we started our trip um, with a couple of days in London, um, visiting with the, the folks with, um, with Brooke. Mm-hmm. And then we um, went from London to New Delhi and then traveled out and about for about, I think, 10 days um, throughout different parts of India, you know, including going from, um, oh gosh, I have trouble pronouncing, you know, a lot of the names of where we were going, but, mm-hmm. you know, we took uh, Air India to, you know, a couple locations. And so we were, we were on the move. Um, and it was a very interesting in that the trip was not, this was not a tourist trip. Our, right. our itinerary was not there to see, you know, tourist sites and, and areas of interest or, mm-hmm. um, it was all about seeing the work and it was truly fascinating. Um, and, uh, we were in very rural areas and I could tell you, um, some of the places that we visited, um, I, I would not be surprised if I was the first, you know, very fair skinned blonde woman that they'd ever seen. And it was really interesting. I, I kind of created a little bit of a spectacle, uh, <laughs> deeper into the country we went because sure. I just don't think they've seen someone for that fair and, you know, light haired. It was, it was fascinating. Um, they receive you was it I mean with the surprise I'm sure but were oh my gosh I was just the the Indian people are so warm and so um welcoming I mean I it was a life-changing trip for me not only to see the work we were doing and um uh the level of struggle that um not only the animals were experiencing but the people and the caregivers of the animals, for me, it was, it was a real epiphany. It was, it was, I had a, I had a aha moment during that trip and um, being a real animal welfare advocate, you know, all my life, I've always really been, that's kind of what fed me. It was like, I was very interested in the animal aspect of it, but where I had that, that epiphany was in India in realizing, um, not, not only abstractly, but seeing it, um, you know, in front of me, the connection between the animal owners and the caregivers with their animals and realizing that, you know, not only is Brook USA programs supporting and advocating for these working equines, but the direct result of improving the lives of the people that are so closely tied to these animals was extraordinary. And I, I had that, I really made that human animal connection. And for me personally, I hadn't really made that. It was like, I made that connection abstractly, but actually uh-huh. seizing the phys- physicality of it really made an impression upon me. So, you know, even though, you know, Brook USA is an organization supporting you know, the lives and, um, of working equines, it really is working equines 
and their caregivers, owners, and communities. You know, right. you can't do one without the other. Yes. And they're right. very, very much tied. And, and that was very pivotal for me and um, in a very positive way. Um, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was very interesting. Yeah. And it really, that whole trip really touched my heart. Um, there was one instance, um, we went to many different locations, um, numerous brick kilns and, um, a lot of the labor and laboring families that live on property at the brick kilns. And there was a situation where we had arrived and we were, um, you know, review, walking around and, and, and seeing the facility and the working conditions and the animals and, uh, there was a family that was living there on property, like really right next to the kiln. And um, they were taking a break and um, it was a, you know, a man and a woman and children of various ages. And um, uh, one of their, their, they had a son who was, was bathing and, you know, cleaning himself up and was, clearly developmentally disabled and it just it it just broke my heart and then one of their younger children must have been I think the daughter may have been I'm guessing like maybe four and she walked towards us and um and they were all very warm and she approached me and I was you know sent greeting her and then she showed me her hands because I wanted to reach out and like shake her hand or or have some kind of connection with her. And she showed me her hands and they were covered with, with clay from making bricks. Oh you know? my gosh. So this family, this entire family was involved in the process and it just really touched me. It was a very pivotal moment. And um, it made me realize that, you know, our advocacy and, and, and education of, provide, you know, sharing how to better care for these animals, which will make them more productive, not only will the animal have a better quality of life, um, but will be more productive and will directly benefit the the owners and caregivers of the animals. It was, it was a, a pretty intense trip, very much so. That's moving to me just hearing yeah. you describe yeah. it. I, I've I'm very from... emotional. I still get emotional yeah. when I really reflect upon it. Um, I, oh, I would too. Yeah, it's, and I can't wait to go back. Um, I fell in love with India. I fell in love with the people. And um, I really learned a lot about myself in that, you know, we were exposed to some pretty challenging situations, um, living conditions, things of that nature, which, you know, I'm a middle-aged woman, you know, from California in the Napa Valley. And I wasn't sure how I could handle that. And, you know, I actually um, surprised everyone in our group that I was the one that was probably a little more adventuresome and, you know, able to, to feel positive. Well, we all felt positive about it, but um, it was able to handle the, the environment. 
I yeah. can imagine that you would be. That makes me want to travel with you. I, that's exciting. <laughs> was this the same trip with David, Dr. Jones, and Kathy? No, no. Different this, trip? Okay. This okay. Different trip. Um, this was actually prior to, I know Dr. Jones does do a lot of different trips, but this uh-huh. Uh-huh. was myself, um, Emily, and Jazz, who's, I don't know her, can't remember her exact title, but she's high uh-huh. up in Brooke in, out of right. London. Right. And, um, and then actually one of um, Brooke's uh, legacy donors, um, a wonderful character of a woman um, named Topsy. And um, there's the four of us women. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Now, Ransom, have you been before? Have you been overseas with Brooke USA? I have not, but I would love to go. I'm dying to go to India. And I think... Mom, I think you and I should go once, you know, the, I know the whole COVID situation is hard to see yeah. the light at the end of the tunnel. And right, I don't know right. how to do it, but I would love to get my hands, you know, I it like yeah. work and <laughs> yeah. person. Right. Well, when y'all go, let me know. I'm going to tag along. I'm going to meet you over there. It's <laughs> very hands-on. I think yeah. this would be an ex- extraordinary experience, not only just seeing the work in India, but you know, all the other places where we, where Brooke USA does its work. And exactly. um, so I'm, I'm dying to, to bring Ransom along in. Um, I'd lo- love for her to have that, that epiphany and, and pivotal mm-hmm. moment that I was so fortunate to experience when I was in India. That's a great idea. We're pleased to announce our latest funding initiative, the Virtual Auction. You'll find amazing items, from equestrian clothing and accessories to food and beverage, or even luxury travel and tourism. There are so many things to choose from. You can browse the online catalog and even keep track of your favorite items by adding them to your wish list. You'll find the auction on the Brook USA website or go directly to brookusa.maestroweb.com. Can you tell us a little bit about the auction? I think it sounds intriguing. Well, um, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of you know nonprofits are having to pivot and rethink their fundraising activities um, now that we don't have in-person opportunities at this point in time. So um, I was very actively involved with putting together the um, the auction that was originally scheduled to be held at our white party event um, earlier in the year um, at the uh, Wellington Equestrian Festival and our winter um, equestrian festival. And so we have all these wonderful auction items, uh, jewelry, trips, um, horse related gear, things for the home, equestrian items, all kinds of great things to auction off, which originally were scheduled to be auctioned at the event. And that Mm -hmm. of course was canceled due to the pandemic. And so now we have all these wonderful items that we are offering online. So we'll hopefully reach a broader audience and um, there's some really great pieces and we hope to, to raise, you know, more monies with the auction and, um, and share it with your friends. Absolutely. Bid often, bid high, and tell your friends. 
Well, you've mentioned several times this white party, the Sunset Polo and White Party. And I, everybody that I talk to tells me how phenomenal this party, this event is. And they've said that you're considering whenever we do go back to normal, having sort of a similar thing on the West Coast. Now, you have a background in entertaining and decorating and all these things. And so with your personal aesthetic and talent in bringing California wine country style to the home, I can imagine quite a special time if you do have one. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think you would do with a sunset polo and white party in California? What would it be like? Well, um, we're lucky enough to have a really wonderful venue where we originally had scheduled the event. And I think our plan is to continue moving forward to, to work with, um, with that location is the Menlo Circus Club. And um, it's, a, it's a country club and um, they also have polo grounds. And just like at um, the Wanderers Club in Wellington, Florida, you know, it's, it's, it's a party, it's an event, but it's also, also it's a charitable polo match. And so um, down in Menlo Park, which is just south of San Francisco, um, there's a beautiful area of um, Atherton and Menlo Park area in its horse country, Woodside. It's kind of the Northern California horse country. And there's this gorgeous country club and they have polo grounds. And we thought that would be the perfect location to have a similar fundraising event. Um, it's horse centric. There's actually a barn on property, a equitation, a hunter barn on property. And that we would also have a, um, like a, uh, demonstration polo match, you know, fundraising match. And then, you know, people would buy tickets and we'd also have an auction and do lunch or dinner, you know, depending upon, I think originally we had planned on it being a day game. Um, but, uh, we'll see as we move forward and when we're all start getting more comfortable being around each other in larger groups. Um, but it's, it's a great way to, to, uh, tie in horses and a fundraising event. Sure. Well, I, I was speaking with some of the other Brook USA ambassadors. And so Ransom, I think it'd be a great idea to have a polo match. And all of you guys do the polo. I think even if you don't know how to play, that could be a lot of fun. <laughs> Allie Brock was telling me, yeah, she might might be one of the ones that could hop on and do that. So maybe maybe that'll be your goal. Sure, do. <laughs> yeah, my it could be fun. <laughs> So Ransom, what is next for you in writing? Are you are you back in it at, when you finish school? How are you going to handle all that in the future? Um, so, you know, again, I'm finishing up my senior year here at SMU and I'm on the home stretch. And I'm, I think after I graduate, I'm looking forward to taking a year off before entering the workforce and um, competing for a year without having the pressures of college is going to be really nice and um that's her graduation gift she gets that's phenomenal that's amazing yeah so then um, hopefully you'll get her off the books <laughs> <laughs> well now i also have heard that they're the brook usa funding speaking of being back at home possibly that it, the california wildfires and some of the other things even all the storms that that are coming close to you in texas ransom all these other things are happening and some of the funding that's coming from this Brook USA 
fundraising initiative is going toward things like the wildfires and and help for assistance for the animals and people from the the storms. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, Brooke USA has helped support equines affected by the wildfires um, for the past three years. So they started getting more involved after the 2017 fire. Um, There's unfortunately every year it seems like fire season and during the summer it gets worse and worse with climate change and Mm -hmm. it can just get so dry up there. It's like a tinderbox. And there is this volunteer based organization organization called CART, which stands for community animal response team. Um, And I'm pretty sure each I'm, I might, I may be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure they're spread out throughout California um, I know we have like a Napa cart and a Sonoma cart. Um, and actually they came and got my horses at like 4 a.m. in the morning by our house um, during one of the fires. So it's a really great organization. Wow. Wow. I didn't realize that that, that had come so close to you. And I, I mean, as we've said before, and Laura, as you mentioned in India with the families who are so tied to their horses just for livelihood, you know, it's, we have that same, I don't know, Ransom, if you have a heart horse or not, but I was talking with somebody earlier today about the heart horses and how you get one that you're just totally attached to. And um, you just want to know that they're okay. So organizations like CART are so, so important when, when you have to count on somebody to help you with something like that, for sure. For more exciting content, tune in to Winnie Tales, horse stories, pony legends, and unicorn yarns, featuring the work of international equine clinician Bruce Anderson. You'll find these podcasts and more at equusfilmfestival.net or on any of your favorite podcast directories. Laura, you know, I'm, I'm seeing you as we're sitting here talking and you have this boxes and, and things all behind you. And it just reminds me that we're in that holiday season preparation time where you must be with everything you have going on with your business and with the winery and everything else. What are your plans for the holidays since we're doing all this virtual stuff? Will you still be doing some decorating? And how does that work with your business, Vintage Home? Well, um, I've had my store, um, well, I'm actually coming up on 19 years. And so I've been I've been through a lot. I've been a, the dot-com bust. I've been through fires. I Now I have a pandemic under my belt. I have more fires under my belt. And um, we also here in California have these um, pre-scheduled power shutdowns. So we have those under our belt. So it's been a pretty interesting climate to be in retail. Um, so my husband um, is in the wine business, uh, Rombauer Vineyards. He and his sister um, are the owners of Rombauer Vin- Vineyards. But um, I have my, I've had my store coming up on 19 years and it's a, kind of a Napa Valley lifestyle store with the focus on tabletop, you know, entertaining um, ceramic tableware, table linens, just about a little of everything. And um, it's been very successful for me. I love it. And uh, so this is a very busy time of year for me. Um, Being in retail, we do get Christmas out early. And I was actually closed yesterday because we were decorating all the trees and we have a 17 foot tall Christmas tree in my store. And we were up on ladders putting up, I think, thousands of ornaments. And um, 
<laughs> so Christmas is a big deal for me from the business standpoint. Um, my store uh, is definitely a destination in Northern California. We really do up Christmas. We have multiple trees, um, heirloom quality, Christmas decor. A lot of, um, I import a lot of um, Austrian and German um, Christmas related items. Um, so it's very traditional Christmas and, uh, you know, Christmas items that are meant to be passed down from one generation to the next. Um, and as far as at home, I definitely love to do it up. And um, I'm a, I come from a family of foodies. I guess we're a bunch of foodies and winos. And um, I'm a pretty good cook. My mother is, is an extraordinary chef. And I grew up around that. And actually, Ransom is not too bad herself. Um, <laughs> she, uh, I don't think there's too many college students that have you know, multi-course elaborate dinner parties like she does um, because she's fortunately he's learned from her mother and her grandmother how to cook. And so she yeah. really enjoys that and setting a nice table. Um, so we're, we're going to be home for the holidays. I typically am home. Um, we're home for Thanksgiving. We always make a point of having, um, we call them orphans. We like to have folks that, you know, may not have a place to go. Um, join us. So we'll have a group of anywhere from it'd be like 10 to 14 people for Thanksgiving, you know, our family and various orphans. And, um, you know, for Christmas, um, my husband and I, he's involved in a, a men's kind of uh, winery business group. And um, actually, he is second generation in that his father was a member also he's uh is now deceased but kr is now a, a member and this will be our second year of hosting the the men's group christmas party and that's kind of the one occasion where the wives are invited so wow <laughs> so it's great because it's early december and it forces me to get the house all done up early and um so there will be about 30 for dinner um at our home in early december so yeah i've always really enjoyed the holidays and and all of the preparation and decor that goes with that and cooking you know at thanksgiving i cook two turkeys and, you know, we we do the whole kit and caboodle you do it up right oh ransom i bet you can't wait to get home oh, for that i love coming home <laughs> really good food i get to reconnect with everyone and yeah That's special yeah well, I, I know it won't happen this year, but next year I'm going to be one of your orphans. I'm just going to come because it sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> so what do you both think is next for Brook USA? It is, is there a plan? Do you see foresee more things um, you know, in person, more online initiatives? I hear there's the new campaign, The Power of One. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, The Power of One is an effort to to remind people that, you know, every little bit helps. It may not seem significant as an individual or an individual donation of $5, $10, $20, but accumulatively, when we reach a broad audience, you know, the sum of all those efforts really can create some momentum and create traction and create results. And it really is, um, an incredible opportunity 
opportunity to get involved and make a contribution, whatever you're most comfortable with, knowing that many others are doing the same and that that accumulative result um, can make some a meaningful difference in the lives of these working equines and the communities and families that they support. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I know, I know that the, um, the upcoming auction and everything else will, will be a good way of getting the word out. So I'd like to thank you both for spending this much time speaking with me on the podcast about everything that you've done for Brook USA. I can tell it's a family affair. So thank you for that. (laughs) 100 million working horses, donkeys, and mules support 600 million of the world's poorest people. They are the sole source of income for many families through the backbreaking labor of their animals. Unfortunately, the majority of these working equines are suffering from chronic welfare issues and premature death, nearly all of which are preventable. Brook USA provides funding for scientifically proven, practical, and sustainable equine welfare programs throughout the developing world. We work primarily through Brook, the world's largest international equine welfare charity, which reaches 2 million working equines annually, benefiting 12 million people who depend on them. When we fund training for people and veterinary interventions for working equines, Brook USA effectively prevents and eases the suffering of these animals and ensures better livelihoods for people now and for generations to come. Projects recently funded by Brook USA include construction of permanent water troughs in Ethiopia, continuing education for veterinarians in Senegal, training for Maasai women who own donkeys in Kenya, veterinary interventions in Pakistan, disease prevention and training for animal health care workers in India, improved nutrition for animals in Guatemala, and so much more. We also recently funded emergency relief programs for equine victims of natural disasters in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Please help us fund even more solutions to the world's most challenging equine welfare problems. Our next celebrity guest is Brook USA Ambassador Ingrid Hoffman. Ingrid is a Colombian-American television personality, chef, restaurateur, author, and host of the Food Network series, Simply Delicioso. Oh, Ingrid, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure, and the work that Brooks USA is doing is so amazing, and it's so close to my heart that it's great to have a voice through you and the podcast. Yeah, it's definitely needed. A lot of people don't understand what the organization does. And so I think it's very important that we get into that. Brook USA Celebrity Ambassador. That's pretty special. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've had this chance to speak to some, some ambassadors, but that's, that's awesome. How in the world did you meet up with the organization in the first place? Well, you know, it's funny because we're all worlds collide. And the, the link that a lot of people seem to not make is that, you know, through, first of all, I'm Colombian. So I grew up in, in a third world country. And for me, I always equate working animals to how a lot of our indigenous communities live and, and, and feed themselves and go to school and get water. 
where there's no available water. You know, it's either donkeys, horses, um, and that uh, get, uh, you know, are, are the tra- mode of transportation. Right. Uh, you know, think in the corona during COVID. I mean, in some cases, the, you know, these carts are an ambulance. And, you know, we live in, in this modern world where we don't think of anything like that. And we don't connect so much of uh, how food is related and uh, to these communities. And, you know, in Latin America, I mean, even in the middle of the city, you can be today, today, mm-hmm. in the middle of downtown Bogota City. And you have donkeys and carts and, and horses pulling carts with food and campesinos on them. So it's still very, very common, even in the big cities to see that. We don't see that here, but it's, it's there. It's very normal. So I wondered about about your growing up, if, if working equines were around where you were, I just, I wasn't sure about your childhood with that. So yes. And even today, I mean, listen, all you need to do is land in Bogota city and you'll be driving in, in a very modern city out of the airport. And you'll have to stop at some point to either let a bus go through or a, uh, a cart with either a horse or a donkey and, people transporting whether it's food or or any type of uh, items on it so hmm. it's still hmm. very normal absolutely and and that donkey is so tied into the, just a way of life and being able to provide for your family and and everything else like you said exactly that everything and you know the connection for me for food is is very uh deep always because i work a lot in in the united states with migrant women farmers. And so, you know, we're all interconnected one way or another. And there always seems to be that food is sort of like the common denominator. But, um, you know, when you think that in the underdeveloped world, you know, 600 million people rely on, uh, for instance, uh, one hundred million uh, working animals, hmm. six hundred people that rely six hundred million to a hundred million working animals. Just think about that. It's Astronomical, isn't it? Mm. And we in America, you know, we go about our lives, you know, with everything. So we don't even stop to think about these things. And and that's where I think that an ambassador like myself is comes from a very different. Uh, background or we're segueing into it from a different place because I'm not an equestrian. I mean, I write, uh, but I'm not nowhere at the level of competing or anything like that. Um, and so I bring in a whole other, um, you know, whole other segment, fragment of people that come in through food. And then all of a sudden we'll sit there and go like, wow, I had never thought about that. So so powerful. That really is because everybody, you know, you, you go to a party and everybody congregates in the kitchen. I mean, that's the food is, uh, is just everything. It's our way of life. So growing up for you, I I believe that your mother was um, a chef. Is, is she, was she your intro to the, the world of cooking and cuisine? What, what was that like growing up with her? Well, mom, was a Cordoba trained chef and started her catering company from her home kitchen and grew, 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 grew 
until having restaurants and, you know, I mean, but the, the, my young, young years, it was all this cooking at home. And I am blessed that my father, although he was not a chef, loved to cook. and was an amazing, amazing cook as well. Um, so I grew up in a house with a lot of food and funny enough, that doesn't necessarily mean like my other two sisters never really got the bug. I got it. Now. I mean, I was, they tried shooing me out of the kitchen always. <laughs> I kept putting my fingers in everything and tasting everything and giving opinions at six years old. Um, you and what the first thing was you ever cooked? Oh, yeah. Uh, I would do steaks. I don't like heavy duty. I would do steaks. I would do burgers. I was never into sweets, and I still am not into sweets. So it it was not like my mom tried doing baking cookies with us and cakes. My mom, till the day of today, never been a baker. We were just not a house where there were no sweets. You know, I know that that's a way of a lot of mothers getting their kids in the kitchen. Come and let's bake some cookies. We never had that. So I would like literally go in there and just cook real food. And I would try doing it on my own, which obviously was really dangerous. I would pull up a stool to the stove and they would sometimes catch me. And it's like, you're not allowed to do that. You're going to set the house on fire. So, but it was one of those things. I always, it it was instinctive for me to insert myself into it. And, um, you know, eventually they, like, they couldn't, you know, I kept coming back. So at some point it's like, okay, well, we're not getting rid of her. So might as well join us. Yeah. Well, then you all ended up in Miami in your 20s, I think. I had read about that. And you and your mom and a couple of people opened a a restaurant. Yeah. Well, I had been here before because I'd come to boarding school in in the U.S. at 13. And so I kind of stayed. Then I went back for college, came back. And and I was living here for a couple of years uh, until my mother wanted to come as well. And then we decided to open up a restaurant together. We had in the beginning partners that then we continued alone. They were involved for a while. And then it was basically mom and myself. That and did it work continued. well? Did you split responsibilities or, or how? Oh, who, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. We worked really well. And I, mom has always been uh, very supportive of, uh, everything that I do and, you know, and, and vice versa. So, you know, I've been working with my mom since I was really young. So, um, I all, you know, we've always kind of worked in tandem and, and understand how we each work and what our four days are and what we bring to the table. And it's very different, uh, skill sets. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was quite interesting. And we had the restaurant for like eight years, seven years. And, it was a wonderful experience and um and you know it obviously set me off on the career that i am at today right right um, and you're well known for event planning and that sort of thing and um and the television show kind of developed from there but you you also ended up and we'll talk about it in a little bit with fancy parties for brook usa and that sort of thing correct, so sort of again in miami was that where you were when all of that path started you know, yes. And I, and people say like, you're always like reinventing yourself. And I don't, I don't see it as reinventing. I see it as evolving. Mm 
you know, I, I am, I'm a project driven person. I set out to do something and once that is up and running and then it's like, okay, the vision is there, it's working, you know, like what's next that then I start getting bored. I'm not a good operations uh, person. I'm, I'm a good creative person. I'm good at launching, you know, doing projects from zero to putting the branding together, putting the concept together. And, wow. you know, once it's flying, then it's like, okay, now I'm bored. Let somebody else do that work. <laughs> so, um, the creativity behind yeah, it. Yeah. And so it's kind of evolved, you know, from, as a child events and catering and food and restaurants to then I went into fashion for a bunch of years, then back into food through the restaurant, then eventually back into event planning. Um, and then the television. And so it's, it's always been a little bit of a zigzag and through my evolution probably in the last 10 years, I would say that it's really become more important for me to get involved in, in activism, in humanitarian causes, in um, this type of work that, um, that I get a lot of pleasure out of, that I'm able to use my voice to put behind good causes and I'm not necessarily the person that does it only sitting at a desk, but mm-hmm. I like hands-on and I am, you know, I, I boots on the ground is what I say. Um, and that's the part that I enjoy. And so with all the foundations that I work and on the boards that I sit, I always say to them, you guys know, I'm not showing up at the fundraiser. I don't do parties. Yeah. yeah. Black ties. But <laughs> I will raise the money and I will do the programs that are with the children, like with our Amigos for Kids. And I, you know, do the weekly outreach and monthly with the families, with the children, with the parents, Mm. Uh, do a lot of healthy eating, you know, for them, how to, within your budget and your ethnic uh, uh, background, how to eat a little bit healthier, so I, I definitely do like boots on the ground. And so um, that's also one of the things that I love of Brooks USA. Um, I sat in on this uh, webinar that they had not too long ago. That was amazing. Firsthand seeing what the work actually is in each of these communities. This specifically was in Latin America, mm-hmm. in Guatemala and Nicaragua. And uh, how I think that Brooks USA has been incredibly strategic in partnering up with great NGOs that are already operating in the area. I I really think that today's world is in many ways about strategic partnerships. I think it makes the dollar go so much uh, further as opposed to you having to do your entire infrastructure um, as opposed to coming in and, and helping and, you know, without helping these communities and, and the outreach is, is different. And, you know, obviously the NGOs that we've partnered with have, there is a lot of synchronicity and, and um, you know, it's, it's, it matches our mission. So the fact that we through them can go out and we can educate 
you know, from farmers to veterinaries to, um, you know, all of these um, people, the harness makers, animal traders to improve the standards of care that Brook USA has done besides lobbying in governments, you know, lobbying to improve the lives of these working animals through changes in legislation, local, regional, and national level. So, you know, through these partnerships, uh, we are now, a couple years later since the inception in 2016 of this foundation, we're now really starting to see the results of these partnerships. And, um, and it really does make a difference. And that funding raised by Brook USA goes straight to the, the areas of greatest need. I mean, a dollar, think of a dollar in a third world country and how far that can go. It may not seem like that much to us, but, but definitely. So they utilize a very holistic approach to the funding, which includes, you know, capacity building, sustainability program, female empowerment, which for me is always a huge thing. Definitely. Um, and international advocacy and you know a lot of these this funding goes through private events which obviously at the moment are all going digital um you know the need is greater now than ever across the board right and i really think that for all of us that are privileged and that uh, have it so much better. It, it's really, we have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, I hope the pandemic has shown so many of us is how crucial all these frontline working people are right. and how we need to be able to stand up and help help them, you know, better their lives. And the need is humongous and it's everywhere. And it's global. Um, this is a global phenomenon. You spoke recently at the Concordia Summit about the inequalities in the food system. And I think you, above anybody, would understand that that's a global problem for sure. So bringing it back to the USA-funded projects supporting women equine owners, can you talk about the role of the animals in supporting the food chain? Do they Are they tied to that? How does that fit together? Well, I mean, in the U.S., I'm sure in some rural areas that is the case, obviously not in industrial farming, uh, but around the globe. Oh yes. I mean, how else do you get your goods to the nearest town, to the, to the farmer's market to sell your goods? Mm -hmm. How else it's the only ways is imagine, I mean, either you have to wait every third day for the bus that passes by or, you know, no. So it's really it is these animals and carts that move the goods one way and the goods the other way. Right. So, and taking children to school. And so, yes, it really is. It's their car. It's their truck. It's their container. Um, and it's the only means. So um, a lot of, you know, again, we're so far removed, you know, our beautiful paved roads, but imagine that in so many of these rural areas, buses can't even get up close. Mm -hmm. So maybe you need to ride your donkey for four hours to get to the nearest place where perhaps you grab a bus or you grab a truck or you. 
Well, and you mentioned the pandemic and all the problems that we're having right now with, you know, going virtual with all of our fundraisers, but you have been an instrumental part in the fundraising effort for Brook USA to this point anyway, with a pretty special event. Um, I've heard you're the, you're the decorating genius behind the sunset polo and white party. How do you decide what you, you plan the menu, you do the decorating ideas? What, how does, how are you involved in all of that? Well, when Emily, who can say no to Emily? You know, if you guys don't know, Emily Newland, the CEO of Brooks USA, who I've known for many, many years, you can't say no. When Emily asks, it's like, yes, Emily, sure. Okay, whatever. (laughs) Uh, But then, you know, once I got really involved and, and, uh, you know, I started realizing this is their biggest fundraiser event. And let's make this so special that next year, everyone is going to fight for the tickets and the tables and the seats and and want to be a part of it because although I'm not always the one that loves doing these parties um, but I have to say that when it's not black tie and when it is fun like that and it's of course we had the, the show first the the competition and uh, and then just all the it, it was all outdoors. It was a magical evening. Um, the menu came together impeccable. I said, I'm going to give them something that they're not used to. So I'm going to bring some cool and different flavors. We're going to give them a real tropical Floribian, which is mixed Latin with American. And we have that distinctive Floribian cuisine that has so much fruit in it and uh you know just using all of our native uh uh, typical florida ingredients so we had uh, a lot of dishes designed with mango and coconut and it was just very tropical it lent itself beautiful and people just loved 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 the food and i do have to say that the club has Probably, I do a lot of events remotely uh, through the years all around the country and even in other countries where we always send our recipes ahead and then, you know, we come in last minute and, but the teams on the ground are the ones that do the heavy lifting. And I have to say that never, never has a kitchen interpreted my recipes so amazingly well from the top, top source ingredients, which is always a little bit of a fight for me. You know, it's like, guys, in this case, it wasn't the issue. They went above and beyond. The, so I think that everybody was very, very happy with the outcome because people realized we've, we're getting a lot of quality here. Um, the, the party was all around just phenomenal. And it's just a shame that this year, unfortunately... I believe it was on March 18th that it was supposed to happen. And so, it, you know, it was definitely a, we were all bummed, but, you know, safety above anything. Sure, sure. And, and now it's just a question of trying to get, you know, all the participants to want to be able to like, hey, guys, I know that the party is fun and we'll have it at some point, but we all really need to dig into our pockets right now and we need to see how we're going to, do this and you know actually the uh, equestrian community was hard hit with COVID in the very first beginning 
Right, right. Very hard hit. So, and, you know, it, it makes sense. Any community, you know, from players that, uh, you, you know, across sports to anything that has that sort of a traveling component mm-hmm. and that you're in, in quarters where, you know, so. Together all the time, sure. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. I think we're being very creative about fundraising with this yes. Films for a Cause. I think that's something that by the time this episode airs, it will have already happened. But I know that, that Emily and her staff will end up with more wonderful ideas for next year. And hopefully the party will be back next year. So I think the ambassadors should actually be the ones playing polo at that. I don't know if that's something that you're up for or not, but um, maybe, <laughs> maybe the not. The should be playing polo? Yeah, I think you should. I would love to, except I had major reconstructive back surgery. Oh no! I am the titanium woman. I'm one. I'm no. Has the bionic woman? Bionic woman. Without the superpowers, unfortunately, ah, I'm still waiting problem. for them to kick in. Right, but right. I'm basically, titanium from my waist down. My goodness. My goodness. Well, yeah. no polo for you then. We'll not we'll for a while. Not we'll for for while. next year, maybe the fall. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, another thing I've been really interested in is your new cookbook. Or I don't, I don't think it's new at this point, but Latin Comfort well, Foods. Yeah, at this time, it's been out a year and a half. Right, uh, right. Latin Comfort Foods Made Healthy. It's bilingual. Yeah, it's, it's you know, people say, well, how can Latin food be healthy? And I go, well, it's actually, it lends itself beautifully to be healthy because Tell me which Latin doesn't eat a, a certain color of bean. We all eat beans. We all eat tubers. Right. We eat a lot of real food. So we have a, a very large vast of, uh, you know, good carbs like plantains uh, mm. that you need, you can cook without frying them and they're just absolutely delicious. So um, it's really just about having fun with all these classic dishes, making them healthy no one would know the difference. And so it, it, it was a difficult book to make uh, from bet. all my books, I would say, because we uh, did it with the American Diabetes Association. Mm-hmm. So every recipe had to go back to their labs and ha- it had to come under X amount of salt, X amount of fat, X mm-hmm. amount of sugar, X amount like very, very strict. So I had to like, and every time I would send it's like, okay, the count, we counted, we, we removed this, we removed that, this is going to work. They come back, no, you still need to, or you need to add more fiber, or you need to do this. But it was incredible because it made me really actually discover tips and tricks because I had never had to think so hard about them that I found <laughs> incredible ways of bulking up food that now instead of making it the old way i make it this way because it's so much less calories and so much cleaner and oh, wow. it tastes the same you know the difference that's so, awesome. yeah yeah so it's it was a very challenging book to make but i'm extremely proud of it but it and also benefits the american diabetes foundation right and so yeah i mean here you are still at the philanthropy i mean that's that's amazing that's amazing. You know, it's, it's, we're all connected. Yeah, we're all you, connected. I think you also ended up in um, the Bahamas in the relief after effort after the hurricane where you, you talk about being on the ground. Were you actually on the ground for that too? Well, I actually was the first plane that landed 
in <sighs> ground zero when the airports were closed. Wow. We have a friend who's there who was working with the horses that are now extinct. And um, it, she, I'm sure she probably, you might've seen her. She was everywhere after that. So how did that happen? Did you just decide to go or part of an organization? What was, what was I've become without ever planning it? I've become apparently really good at doing rescue missions. Don't ask me how. I, and it started by accident and I started like three hurricanes back with Houston. And it was because I followed the chef who was, uh, said, you know, once the hurricane hits, I'm going to open up the kitchens and the freezers of all my restaurants and I'm going to start cooking and feeding first responders and shelters and what have you. And I was following him. And by day three, you know, he's like serving 2000 something meals Day five, it's like we're at like 8,000 meals. Day seven, we're running out of food. So I send him a message. How can I help you? You know, I've got connections with, uh, he goes, Ingrid, everything is flooded. Like all the food distributors are flooded. The only way you can help me is if you get a plane and you put food in and you come this way. So I'm like, okay. (laughs) So... That must have been two in the afternoon by six in the morning. I had a uh, refrigerated container arriving at Opalaka Airport. I had gotten a plane on loan and a pilot and I took off and it took us 10 hours to get there because Trump was in the air and we could not, we were so heavy that we couldn't cross the Gulf. So we had to go lining the entire Florida coast, Alabama, getting to Houston. What? And while I was in midair, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not coming back empty. What about all those dog cages I saw floating on CNN from this uh, rescue, um, animal rescue place? And so long story short, I flew back with 22 um, dogs. Oh, and that God. was the beginning of my, it took me two phone calls, literally, to get that together. And after seeing that, oh my God, like, holy shit. First, I call a friend, I send them a text, I need your plane, and I need it field, and I need it by tomorrow morning. And I expected a like, uh, are you okay? <laughs> and I wrote back, it's for the hurricane. And he goes, let me see what I can do. And like two hours later, he goes, you got a plane, but it's got to be back here. So you got to leave early. Then I'm like, okay, what is the payload? How much weight can I take? Yeah. And he says 44,000 pounds. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, where am I going to get between four in the afternoon and six in the morning? Right. pounds of food. Oh my gosh. So... I remember uh, a neighbor of mine that has a food brand called El Latino Foods. And so I called her and I said, I'm in a jam and I need your help. And I'll do every free commercial you ever want from here till the day I die moving forward. But I need you to fill an entire plane of food for me. And she paused, listened my entire thing. And then she goes, fresh or frozen? Oh, my gosh. So that was the beginning. And after that, there's never been a back. And so then came Hurricane Maria. We ended up rescuing 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. I started getting planes donated that till the day of today, I still don't know who 
because I got, I did everything on social media and I started, I got a call from someone, lady that said, I were willing to give you a few flights, um, but it's anonymous and I cannot tell you who, but I can give you, you know, certificates of, you know, the, the planes, the safety, blah, blah, blah. And so it's just when, when these uh, disasters happen, people are amazing. I mean, there is a lot of really, really good people out there. And so I ended up doing Puerto Rico. And one thing I learned very quickly from Houston and especially in Puerto Rico is that when there is a disaster about to happen, you need to do something. You cannot sit and wait for government because you're never coming fast enough. It takes so much for these large foundations and to mobilize and FEMA and whoever. It takes forever as opposed to someone with a GoFundMe account who says, I'm taking off. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. Going. So through Puerto Rico, I connected on WhatsApp with a lot of rescue organizations. And what happens is that at night you start trading goods. I have a plane. Okay. I have doctors. Can you get my doctors to there? Then I'll give you generators or, you know, so through them, we connected and ended up being incredibly efficient in Puerto Rico. Um, and then when the Bahamas happened, I had lived in the Bahamas and I know a lot of people there and I have a lot of connections there. So when the Bahamas happened, um, you know, all the airports that were in Grand Zero were close or underwater. My rescue WhatsApp groups uh, had someone in this one area that was the only um, landing strip that could be cleared and they did and they sent us pictures overnight of they cleared the debris debris of course airspace was closed airports were closed I ended up through a connection saying you know can I land in Sandy Point they're like Sandy Point is closed it's underwater I go no it's not underwater here's a picture show it to the prime minister then I got word back the next morning saying, okay, they're not going to turn you away. And I had these air ambulances of this company that now we've become friends called Itheris Aviation. They operate air ambulances and they literally said, you've got our ambulances. All you need to do is find money to fuel them at cost. Pilots will donate their time. Uh, we'll connect you to the Cleveland Clinic medics and you guys can go and set up, you know, whatever you need to do, just find the money and we're ready to go. And so by the next morning, we, I literally was rounding up money and I had gotten some big donors on board who then last minute pulled out because everybody told them, you know, she's crazy. There's, if she's telling you that she's taking off, for Sandy Point, that's not happening, and I wouldn't be giving her money, you know, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I land in Sandy Point, and we are literally, like, sending pictures, you know, and everybody's like, how the hell, you're not there? I'm really like, oh, my God, how did you get there? I'm like, ah, don't worry, I'm here. <laughs> so, are you wiring the money? <laughs> because I plan on doing a lot of so yeah. we started trying to get money for 13 flights and we ended up doing over 40 something flights. And we started seeing the Coast Guard on day four 
by now we had already done triage centers and cleared another two runways with several other of those rescue groups. So we became an incredible network of you clear the runway, I have the plane, you get me the doctors, you get me the, the medicine and, and trading and bartering. And we did an incredible, incredible job. It was also one of the saddest. I think about it, I want to cry because what I got to see there, I can never unsee. And I should have listened to the, the first responders and the SEAL team guys that we were taking on that first um, mission, which were in rafts that we were going to inflate outboard engines. And they're like, I don't think you should be coming. I'm like, I need to go see, I need to document how else am I going to get people to give me money? And I actually need to inspect and see where, you know, what our next logistics are. There's people on the ground that I haven't been able to talk to. And I've got a satellite phone, blah, blah, blah. And, and I really should have done gone on that flight because it, uh, it, it was, uh, yeah, normal people like myself were not equipped to see what I saw. Wow. And, but at the same time, it did, it was like putting a firecracker, you know, in my body because I did not sleep for a month. And I came back and I said, like, this is mayhem. We need to, everybody needs to. And at that point in time, I started getting my sisters, my best friends, everybody became Now they had already seen Houston. They had seen Puerto Rico. They're like, okay, we know she's going to get it done. Let's support it. And before you knew it, we had $200,000 in a GoFundMe page. And we had people throwing planes at us, generators, engines, water, whatever. And we started bringing back like um, animals, and we would, uh, the idea in the beginning, of course, I had, I had not had the experience was that I thought that we'd be bringing all the very injured people to MIA, uh-huh. but we couldn't because if you were not uh, a citizen or a resident of the United States, they uh-huh. would take you. So then what we started doing is ferrying in between each of these islands back and forth to Nassau, uh-huh. to the hospital in Nassau. And uh-huh. there were a few that we brought in here. Right. Uh, and then I ended up getting hotels donated, the SLS donated hotel rooms for all of our crews and our medics. And uh, so, yeah, that's how wow. I ended up becoming a rescue person. <laughs> Never thought I would. Wow. And, um, my last, I started with the little ambulances um, in, in the Bahamas and I ended up with a 737 uh, filling it up. Oh. At cost, uh, fueling it, and like it was, it became That's quite crazy, very, very crazy stuff. We pulled a lot of wild stuff, but you know, it also becomes a drug, huh? Yeah, like yeah. You, you're like, okay, like what's the next? Like, how much further? You know, <laughs> we started with little, you know, two engine planes, now we're freaking 737, That's but now it's like we have to fill it too, right? <laughs> Well, it sounds to me like you are so determined once you get set your mind to it. Nobody's going to tell you no. And I'm not getting my way. That's all I'm saying. Well, I can't think of a better person to be working for Brook USA. I mean, I've got the perfect ambassador. That's got to be you. So it's funny because a lot of my friends started calling and saying, like, you know, I'm going to change my emergency contact to you. (laughs) Because it's funny. We all have our sisters, our brothers, our spouses. I mean, 
my two sisters, I would not want them. And I removed them because they get so nervous that it's like, that's why we should be making, you know, like I will be able to airlift you. I'll be able to do whatever in seconds because I'm good under that pressure. But yeah, that's something that people should think about. Really rethink who you put as your emergency contact. It needs to be someone that will be able to pull off like circus acts. (laughs) <laughs> well, I believe Emily Doolin has you on her speed dial for sure, because she's got to know that, I'm sure. Well, that one herself is pretty. pretty That's a one too, yeah. Yeah, Emily and I together, oh boy. Well, <laughs> well I'm, I'm just so impressed by everything you all are doing for Brook USA, and, and this especially, it's opened my eyes, you know, I, before we started the podcast, I didn't didn't realize how, how dire the situation was in so many places. So um, what do you see as the next step for you with Brook USA? Is, I know probably parties and that sort of thing. Is there anything else coming that you know of or are you going to wait and create it as it comes? Um, well, you know, one of the things that is very important is the power of, uh, of one, which is the new campaign starting now, October, for mm-hmm. one year. And it really is about demonstrating the power of pooling financial resources. So if one person can donate $1 and, and so on. So it's, it's the power of one that cum, cumul, cumulative, how do you say that? Cumulative. Uh-huh. Cumulative um, does. So I, I personally believe in that because giving a dollar is not difficult. And I think that it can be done. And obviously this will stimulate people to also donate more than that. Um, I would like to, in the future, you know, be down in Latin America with them or in Africa and uh, be able to, I think that the more we can show the world what it is, because most people have no clue. Even when I try to explain, well, you know, we work for the welfare of uh, equine, you know, animals it's like people still don't get it you need to like really sit there and paint the picture you know mm-hmm. and so i think that by going and and showing footage and 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 actually showing the solutions that we're doing like when i sat on the webinar w- watching this gentleman that was going to present it everything that they were doing you get so like oh my god this is amazing like i mean you know it, it inspires people and it connects you to it so i i would like to be more you know boots, boots on the ground that way so i can come back and and tell the story and people can um create you know awareness absolutely and i can see you being part of a of a cuisine type of initiative as well. I mean, like, like we've said, the donkeys are tied to so much more than, than just transportation. It's, it's all, it's all intertwined. So, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking all this time to speak with me, Ingrid. Thank you. And I can't wait to hear this. If you'd like to support Brook USA and help this work continue, you can donate by texting ORANGE to 71760.